Good morning, Redem Redemption Church family. There, I know there's, there is a huge wreck, or I think it's an oil spill. Now, don't quote me, because you know how that goes. Is someone says something, and it goes on and on. But I hear it's an oil spill on 405, and it is not moving. All four lanes are closed. So we're a little sparse, but we are strong in the Lord, right? Amen. My name is Debbie, and I am part of the prayer response team here at Redemption. And if you need prayer at the end of the service, or actually during the last song, Brian, my husband, will be on this side. I will be on this side. Please come down for prayer. We will pray for anything. Um, so if you are a first-time guest, welcome, welcome, welcome. And we have a special gift for you just to say thank you. Thank you for coming. There are movie tickets. If you head back to the Welcome Center as you enter in, they will have them there for you. Um, there is a Connect card in your coffee holder, your cup holder. Um, go ahead, and if you could fill that out, whether it's first time, whether it's um, third time, 67th time, whatever, if you could fill that out with your, at least your name and your email address, that really helps us a lot. On it is the awesome QR code that leads you to our sermon notes and our... Well, anything, our announcements, anything on there. So, and it actually, it also leads you to like the curriculum for our small groups. And small groups, guys, find one. It is so enriching. And I'm making some, for myself, making some really good friendships that I would not have made if I hadn't shown up to small group. Um, Christmas Eve at 430 Yes, we got the big theater. We get to go back to where we started and have the big theater. Oh, in um, please invite everyone you know and come celebrate with us. It's going to be a glorious time. Um, I have a verse here really quickly that kind of goes with Christmas. I love going out and looking at Christmas lights, right? Aren't they beautiful? And some people go all out. And of course, my phone is going the wrong direction here. There we go. Um, Matthew 5.16, which fits in, right? Because we're in Matthew. And we Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Um, so many beautiful, beautiful lights, right? And we have a beautiful light in us to shine to others. So let's be doing that. One last thing. Um, and then Jesse's coming. Um, there is in the back. So I don't know if you know this, Naomi is going off somewhere. She's going to Hawaii. Tough stuff here, but she's going to be trained in ministry stuff, right? Yeah. And so we're going to lose her for a while, but we would like to send her off with some something special. In the back by the coffee is a book. And if you could give her a little note, sign that, so we can send her, that she can take a piece of us with her when she leaves. And... I think that's it. Yeah. Can right? we thank Debbie, everybody? Yeah. Let's go before the Lord. Let's pray, and we're going to worship together today. We've got a lot to be thankful for. We're going to pray for everybody who's tuning in from 405 on your phones. <laughs> All right. Let's turn the 405 into a church. Are right, you guys worship? Honk, so if you know you're near one another. <laughs> honking, mean, honking means amen now on 405. That's what that means. That's what all that honking you're hearing is. Those are all members of the Redemption Church. They're all around you. <laughs> and that's our new, that's our new uh, interstate location. 
So I'm, I'm really grateful that you came today. I'm gra- grateful that you, uh, that, you, that you braved the traffic or like perhaps some of our team members did broke the law to get here. <laughs> we already were missing some team members who are on vacation, who are out of the state right now. And so we were already down to about a, a third of our regular size. And then we had numerous people who got stuck on the interstate. So what you see, all of this, our ability to live stream, our ability to produce in-house sound, all of it was put together by a skeleton crew who are just amazing people. We didn't know how to do stuff, so we Googled it, and now it's working. Can you thank our setup team and everybody? Absolutely phenomenal job. Thank you all so much for your help. Let's pray. Let's go before the Lord. God, I thank you for what you're doing in the Redemption Church. I thank you, Lord, for the marriages you're saving. I thank you, Lord, for for people in our fellowship who have homes to live in now. I thank you, God, for those who are being freed from various sins and addictions. I thank you, Jesus, for the work your spirit is accomplishing among your people. It's the earnest and sincere prayer of our hearts, God, that you bring revival to our city. And so, Lord, though numerous issues get in the way, we gather, we strive, we do whatever it takes to get to this movie theater, Lord. And when we can't be here, we tune in from afar, all united in spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would pour out revival on this area. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would be honored by the praise that we lift up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Redemption Church. Would you please stand with me this morning?
Hey. 
which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory upon his shoulders ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the Have a seat. Welcome. I see more have, more have made their way from 405 North, going illegally up on ramps, <laughs> cutting through the woods, dodging deer. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Anything to get to the house of the Lord, right? <laughs> Amen. Welcome home. We have much to be thankful for. Thank you for those who have filled out a commitment card to the Revival Project, our building campaign. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. There are numerous people here tuned in online from the 405 North Campus of the Redemption Church. 
and, uh, and those who are here and those who are tuning in elsewhere who have not yet filled one out before the end of the year. So if you have liquid assets that you could commit to the Revival Project, would you do that today? Would you go to redemptionwashington.com slash revival and let us know what God lays on your heart to be able to give above and beyond your normal tithes and offerings so that we can budget a down payment. That's the biggest obstacle. It's the biggest obstacle to getting into property is that down payment. We have a mortgage lender. We have someone who's willing to help us purchase property. And now it's up to us. Somebody has come forward and and committed $250,000 to the revival project. And we celebrate that again because it's amazing. And then our building consultant likewise projects based on the commitment so far that we look at a total of $950,000 over the course of two years. Can we celebrate that? Because that's also amazing. And so here and now, as we go into the new year, as the market, by the way, continues to decline in real estate, all right? This may be a bad thing if you're trying to take out a HELOC, but it is a good thing if you're for, I don't know, for example, planting a church in Washington state. Aha! It's actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. It helps us, all right? I know our people. I'll bet that we could find a church building that is old and decrepit. The carpet has been changed since Nixon was president and we could see equity overnight, right? All right, I know you guys. I've seen some of your work. We've got a lot of contractors in this church. We're gonna have better bathrooms than the Mormons. I just know it. So in the meantime, to get to that place, to get to that place, would you give to the Revival Project? Would you give to the Revival Project? Would you give, especially as the year comes to a close? Let's go before the Lord. Let's give as the ushers come forward. Let's give online at redemptionwashington.com. You can also get, place offerings in the box at the back of the theater. But right now, let's go before the Lord. Let's pray. God, I lift up the members of the Redemption Church, and I thank you, Jesus, for your goodness toward us. We lift up our, our loved ones here who are in other states, who are, who are in Hawaii suffering for you right now, God, for those who are who are visiting family in other towns. Lord, would you bring them back safely here? We lift up the 405 North Campus of the Redemption Church. God, would they have divine patience? Would you give them an opportunity, Lord, to minister? Would they they just receive the word of God as it's spoken to them right now where they wait? Lord, we lift up every dollar that has been given so far to the Revival Project and every dollar that will be given as the year comes to a close. You know that we face a colossal effort, God, as a small independent church plant facing the second most expensive housing market in the U.S., but we see your hand at work among people of the Redemption Church who are giving sacrificially above and beyond tithes and offerings, among generous donors who have come forward with with miraculous commitments. Jesus, you are incredible. You are able. You are greater than everything that stands in the way of the growth of your kingdom. And so, Lord, as humble servants, as your bride, your body here in Bellevue, we invite your will to be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. Would you bring some of that heavenly perfection where you reign and would you have it done here on sin-stained earth? Would you grow your kingdom? Would you push back the lines of darkness in a militaristic act of aggressive spiritual conquest, deliver the lost, 
Deliver the broken. Deliver us from addiction. Deliver us from homelessness. Deliver us from depression. Deliver us, God, from deceptive thoughts. Deliver us from false teachings. Replace it all, all of the darkness with the marvelous light of the gospel of Jesus Christ by whom everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Push back the lines of darkness. Grasp by the heart those you foreknow. Bring them to yourself. Light up our darkness, Jesus. Light up the dark here. This is why we give. It's because you're Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And in Jesus' name we give. Amen. This is the Gospel of Matthew. God fulfills absolutely every promise he makes. His perfect faithfulness spans decades, encompasses centuries, crosses millennia. We have studied Ruth, a prequel to the Gospels. Today, we explore the fulfillment. After this, we will experience Isaiah, observing Christ's perfect fulfillment of everything that was foretold about him. Matthew 3:16 and 17 read, When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the fulfillment of all hope prophesied in the Old Testament. He stands at the apex of scripture. All of history has always been his story. He is our hope. He is our savior. In him alone, we can find fulfillment. His name is Jesus. There is hope in Jesus that you would be reconciled in eternity forevermore with beloved little ones whom you have lost, there is hope. There is not explicit biblical text that says overtly all babies go to heaven when they die, but there is hope, and hope is not insignificant. This is both deeply personal and it's also something that's well studied as it is both part of my family's story as the father of a child who passed away and it's also, it's also the substance of the thesis of my doctoral dissertation. This was something that served as the impetus for a conference for bereaved parents called the Aiden's Hope Conference. We'll talk more about that as we go. But it comes from my biblical basis for my hope that infants go to heaven when they die comes in large part from the text that we have arrived at in our study plan. All right, as personal as this is to me, it's not something that I chose to be today's topic. Rather, we as a church have endeavored to go through the whole word of God, amen? And now we've arrived at this chapter of Matthew. This QR code will help you get sermon notes so you can see all of my cross-references because there's a lot of Bible in this sermon. There's a lot of Bible in all of our sermons is it okay to have lots of Bible in a sermon redemption church? Is that all right? Yeah, you got it. You got it. So this will help you keep track of it all because there's a lot here. There's a lot here. All right. This is something I want to show you as we start. 
because you're gonna see how this comes back at the end. Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is a beautiful ancient promise. The Holy Spirit was speaking through David and it is a word of incredible comfort. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous man may have many troubles, many adversities, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Not one of his bones will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked and the foes of the righteous will be condemned, but the Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. It's a beautiful word of comfort to the brokenhearted, to the crushed in spirit. And so if that is you, if this sermon triggers grief for you, I wanna begin with this ancient promise from Psalm 34, and then I'm gonna show you how it is fulfilled in Jesus. Here's where we are in the text. We've arrived at Matthew chapter 18. We're gonna see various themes today. We're gonna see Jesus give a unique teaching within his ministry with a little child right there in his lap, according to the Mark gospel account. And he's going to teach about the unforgiving debtor. And he's going to teach about reconciliation and the restoration between brothers and sisters in Christ in the context of the church. And all of it is actually one big contiguous theme. Now, the, the, the parable of the unforgiving servant is one that we will give brief treatment to today and then we will return to later. Because you, you may, if you've downloaded the notes, you're like, Campbell, how in the world are you gonna cover all of this scripture in a decent amount of time? All right, we have to get back on 405 South somehow. And we're looking at starting another 405 South campus of the Redemption Church. So here's the thing. We will return to particularly the parable of the unforgiving servant. So, so forgive me if I, give it, if I give it more of a flyover treatment now with the understanding that it will return for a more in-depth analysis and application by the power of the Spirit of God among his people later on in the text. All right, does that sound good, Redemption Church? So here we, here we are in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, so who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? All right, let's stop right there. This is already a self-serving question, but watch how Jesus redeems the moment. Verse two, he called a child and had him stand among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. These are the words of Jesus. This is how Jesus feels about children. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses will inevitably come. We saw this in our sermon about Forgiveness and how it is absolutely necessary for the future trajectory of your life and your happiness to be aware of this fact. So I'm gonna, 
I'm going to highlight this one. This is incredibly important, all right, for offenses. What is this next word, Redemption Church? Will. What is this next word? Inevitably come. But woe to that person by whom the offense comes. Okay, do you see that? Scott Farkas can't use this verse as a justification. Jesus said that offenses will come. So guess what? I'm going to offend you. <laughs> no, not so fast. Not so fast, Karen. All right? Woe to that person by whom the offense comes. Based on the foreknowledge of God, he knows that offenses will come. He knows that conflict is inevitable, but that does not let you off the hook if you instigate conflict unnecessarily. Woe to that person by whom the offense comes. And the spirit of offense is the number one thing that will detract from your happiness this side of heaven. Your ability to forgive anyone for anything is an absolute necessity for you to experience happiness in this life. Because right now, by default, our happiness is predicated upon not being offended. And guess what? That's a really stupid basis for happiness because we've been told by God himself, offenses will inevitably come. So the alternative is what Jesus proposes here. The alternative is a gospel-based view of our offenses. If we can pray for our offenders the way that Jesus prayed for his crucifiers, forgive them, forgive them, God, let them off the hook. Don't count this against them. Don't let them be humiliated. Even if they've humiliated me, don't let this be counted against them. Don't remember this against them, God. Throw it as far as the east is from the west because that's what you've done for my sin. And I have been commanded in Matthew 22, I've been commanded overtly and clearly by Jesus to love others the way that I want to be loved. And I know, God, that you've loved me by casting my sin to the very depths of the sea, remembering it no more. So God, would you do the same for those who have wronged me? Anything short of the ability to do this is going to be a miserable life because you will be offended. You will be wronged. You will be betrayed at some point or multiple points in your life. Offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. This segues into the upcoming teaching about how to handle conflict within the church. But let's back up and not forget what we just read because it's a contiguous train of thought regarding the one who leads little ones astray. Do you see? From Jesus's heart for little ones, answering the boneheaded question from the disciples about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He speaks this word of condemnation upon those who would lead children astray. These are the ones to whom he refers, woe to the world because of offenses. Offenses, for example, leading little ones astray who believe in him. Do you see that? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck. This is, this is rightly shocking. It is rightly severe. And it is perfectly just because God said it and God is just. Now, I do believe that Jesus means these words. And I don't, I don't speak in disagreement with my own commentaries lightly or out of hubris. I just believe Jesus meant these words. Jesus gave a teaching 
based on the example of a widow who gave the last, the last little mites that she had, the last little bit of money that she had. It's an amazing teaching. It's incredible. When I was at, when I was at Southern Seminary in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was staying up late, drawing the outline for my dissertation, I was on the third floor of the library. There is a sarcophagus on that floor, all right, meaning an ancient Egyptian coffin. I don't know why, but it's there. And it, it was really creepy late, late one night while I was in the library gathering resources and checking them to build this colossal bibliography. I was there at a table next to this display case with the study Bible of Charles Spurgeon on display in a, in a glass case. Charles Spurgeon is like this legendary pastor and preacher. And every day somebody would come out with these fancy gloves on and then turn a page. And all the pastoral candidate students would come together and try to decipher his own personal note-taking system. All right, the glasses, of, uh, the glasses of Lottie Moon were on display. It was incredible. All these cool little artifacts. And next to the sarcophagus was this display case with all these little coins in it, legal tender from the biblical world. And some of them were mites, kind of the equivalent to a nickel. And they were all found in the right place at the right time such that it's possible, it's possible, it's possible. We don't know how many of these mites, M-I-T-E-S, were in circulation in, uh, in Rome, in Israel at that time, in that era, but the possibility exists that of the mites within the glass display case that one of them could be the one, one of the mites used by the widow who brought forward this example. It was an incredible moment and then the lights went off and I was alone in the dark with an Egyptian coffin. Okay, early 2000s Brendan Fraser movies tell me this is not a good place to be but it's still cool and it was worth it to go and try to figure out is one of these coins, the one that the widow brought forward. That was a teaching moment in Jesus's ministry. So he used the example of this poor widow who gave everything that she had. He also expounded upon the, the faith of a Roman centurion who got it in a way that the most learned men of all of Israel did not get it. He gave object lessons in the vineyard to his disciples. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He would give teaching moments based on the actions of others. He would expound upon the faith demonstrated by the Roman centurion, and he would hold in his hands a vine of grapes with branches on it, and he would use it as an object lesson. Whereby, if you were to take his words literally, not everybody had ears to hear what the spirit was saying. We've seen this in his parables, okay? His parables are another example. If you didn't have ears to hear, if you didn't have the Holy Spirit within you, you would look at Jesus teach and it would just sound like these random farming anecdotes. You throw some seed here. You throw some seed here. You throw some seed here, but here it bears fruit. If you have ears to hear, let them hear. And the Pharisees are like, what? I don't get the hype about this guy. And then meanwhile, in the front row, all of the poor people, all the oppressed, even the tax collectors as well, are all just riveted because they get it. He's talking about different types of hearts. And then their fruitlessness upon hearing the teaching would evidence the truthfulness of the very parable that Jesus gave. So these are all examples of Jesus' teaching moments, but this stands distinctive in his preaching ministry. It's not a parable. 
He's not giving metaphorical speech that's representative of an eternal spiritual truth. It's not an object lesson. He's not literally saying that he's a vine and his, and his disciples are not literally branches. It's not even teaching upon the actions of a human like the Roman centurion or the widow and her might. Rather, this is a human child imbued with the imago Dei, made in the image of God. And he speaks while this child is there. The Greek word, the Greek word that's used here in verse 2 is paideon, and it could refer almost to an infant. This young child is right there among them. Truly, I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We need to come to terms with some things. When we launched the Aiden's Hope Conference, we would go through content, some of which is even in this sermon today. And it was gut-wrenching. People gathered together from all over the place. People came from Oregon. People came from Canada. People came from Idaho. And all of these bereaved parents were all in the same place at the same time. And as my foot took the penultimate step, my gut just was turning because I know that like grieving people can be the most easy people in the world to offend. And I was like, what have I done? My seminary made me have every single person who signed up sign a waiver promising not to sue them if they were gravely hurt by the content that I was about to share. And I knew what biblical content was in that curriculum because I had to share it because it's in the word of God. And everybody in that room also looked up at me regretting like, what have I done coming to this thing? But by the time we were done with our very first session, and we broke for lunch. We broke out into tables and everybody was able to talk. We had Mexican food catered and that delicious Mexican food smell had filled up the whole auditorium and nobody left. You could just hear all of the chatter. It was a safe place for parents who had lost children to, to break down. If somebody in that room broke down in sobs, nobody stared. Nobody asked questions. We knew exactly why that was. People were able to tell their children's stories without having to water it down so as to consider the feelings of everybody else at the table. And I heard laughter, lots of laughter. I remember the first time that I had to kind of dodge the question. I was at Walgreens and I had kids with me and I just came for some Mucinex, all right? That's the reason I'm there. I don't want to have a big, deep spiritual conversation with the cashier, but here I am you know, with four little ones. And then the cashier's like, wow, you have four children? And I know that I have five ones in heaven. But to make it easier on her, I just said, yeah, four children. And then the tears were already in my eyes before the automatic doors opened on my way out. And so we're used, as bereaved parents, we're used to just making it easier on other people by pretending like our children who died don't exist. And at the Aiden's Hope Conference, we propose that we just answer that question honestly from now on. Answer it accurately. Don't pretend like the child who died never existed. The child was made in the image of God. The child matters. No child will ever be born like that child ever again. 
And that child is yours. That child had a birth certificate, a death certificate, lived with you. I mean, even if that was a miscarriage, that's another child whose genome is unique within the human species, will never again possibly exist. That was a unique human being imbued with the Imago Dei, and that was your child. Don't pretend like they never existed. And this received an uproarious response that I didn't anticipate. As we endeavored into the text, as we went passage for passage, we endeavored to answer the question, why did my child die? And so I came from every biblical example of children dying to answer the question biblically, why did this child die? You already know one such example. We've studied verse by verse the book of Ruth. Raise your hand if you remember the book of Ruth. All right, yeah, this was, a this was a book that we studied. Naomi lost both of her sons and her husband. We studied Ruth. That was one of the passages we looked at. And we saw what redemption God brought about, how it literally led to Jesus. That was the genealogical line that would lead to Jesus. It's incredible. We looked at John chapter nine, the man born blind, wherein Jesus answers the question, why this man was born? born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We looked at Job and we saw that Job's children died because he was a righteous man with whom the devil had picked a fight to try to show God that Job's love for him was in vain. The only reason that Job loves you, Satan said to God, is that you put your hedge of protection around him. But if you remove your hand from him, you remove that protection from him, he'll curse you to your face. Just watch. And then we came to the example of David and Bathsheba. David, the one through whom the Holy Spirit would inspire the very words of Psalm 34 that we read at the beginning. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Do you see how these in the moment would have seemed very much firsthand experiential for David, that he was pouring out his soul. David knew why his child died because a prophet of God came and told him explicitly why his child died. And I knew that putting that passage in that curriculum at that event for those parents could have gone catastrophically wrong. It was the most scary moment. It was the thing that was at the forefront of my mind before I took the stage. That child died because of David's sin. That's a question my wife and I asked about our own child's death. God, was this because of sin in our lives that our child died? And I was, I was petrified of speaking that text to that group in that context. But we want to know what happened. The altar filled with bereaved parents who came forward and confessed their sin of accusing God of wrongdoing, repented from sin, and finally addressed that looming question releasing anger toward God, confessing sin and being repentant and restored. There was not a single soul there to whom the, the Nathan-style prophecy was made, yeah, your child died because of your sin. I don't have the authority to make that prophecy. I just read the Bible wherein Nathan said that to David. And the Lord used it to bring healing and reconciliation. But in the end, what we told the Aiden's Hope crowd about why did my child die 
my wife and I stood before them and looked out at this crowd that had become increasingly raucous and loud. It was more like a pep rally than it was like a funeral. It was really amazing to behold this empowering that came wherein we would look at them and say, okay, we have started a conference that is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we would look at a difficult passage about why did Job's children die? Well, it's because of the devil at work in this world. And now we show how Job is a picture of the gospel and point to Jesus. Why did, why did Naomi's children die? Well, we see that this was how God brought about Jesus. And then why was this man born afflicted this way? Well, we see Jesus explicitly says, so we point then to Jesus. And every example about a child dying in the Bible, it just leads to Jesus, hope in Jesus, restoration in Jesus, the gospel by Jesus. We just pointed bereaved parents to Jesus because there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And we all found our hope in Jesus. Parents gave their lives to Christ. Parents reconciled with God. There's no other means by which we would ever have hope to see our children again. There's no other savior to atone for sin like ours. There's no hope in anybody but Jesus. And Jesse and I looked out at the crowd and we said, you are another reason why when we look at you, we see God at work. We have named a conference for bereaved parents after our son in the hopes that you would now become the new ministry team for the next generation. Now you go do likewise because the infant mortality rate, the child mortality rate, the teen night, teenage suicide rate, it's not looking good outside the walls of the church and they don't have the, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you do. So you bring that with you and you engage bereaved parents like nobody else can. Nobody can talk to a bereaved parent the way another bereaved parent can. And that's you. You want to see God bring about redemption from the pain that's in your heart? Use the legacy and the memory of your late child and engage someone who's far from God and say, I have hope in Jesus. Let me share it with you because they won't hear it from anybody else but you. And the response was, yeah. Again, it was more like a pep rally than it was like a conference for bereaved parents. This is the most haunting question when a child dies. Why? Well, we see on one part, because we live in a sin-stained world. We know this because of Genesis. We know this because of the word of God. We read the Bible and we look up and observe the world around us and we see exactly what we ought to expect to see based on what we've read in the word of God. You have an enemy. He's the devil. He prowls around like a roaring, hungry lion, just looking for anyone that he can eat alive. That is the reality of spiritual warfare. That's true. The devil hates you. Welcome to the Redemption Church. Like and subscribe. It's true though, isn't it? Have you seen that that's true, Redemption Church? Yeah, yeah. You already know that it's true. You've seen the devil at work. You've seen the devil at work in your workplace. You've seen him at work in culture. You've seen him at work in atrocities. You've seen him at work in your own heart and your own life with the traps that you nearly step into. I don't need to convince you that the devil's real. His, his evidence is all around us. That's what you ought to expect when you read your Bible. And so as we go from biblical question about a child's death to the answer why and the hope found only in Jesus, we run up against some historic teachings of the church. And I'm not just talking about the Catholic church, though that's part of it. I know that it sounds like I've been picking on Catholic churches a lot lately. No, I'm just teaching the gospel of Matthew. That's what I'm doing. Do you understand? But this one actually butts up against even some of 
the reformers. The reformers got some of this wrong. Can I go like Bible church history nerd on you for a second? Is that okay? Right? There was a man named Augustine. Augustine, believe it or not, for several years was actually, he was actually, uh, he was actually heavily influenced by Plutonius and Cicero. He was, in fact, a Manichaean monk before he became a Christian. He was an adherent to Neoplatonism, uh, as in new teachings of Plato. And within this Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, within this Gnostic understanding of the world, absolutely every single thing that happens is predetermined. Now, he went from being a, uh, he went from being a Manichaean monk to a Christian. Fast forward through the centuries to the era of Martin Luther and John Calvin. They're faced with a difficult question. The belief because of church practice was that babies went to heaven when they died as long as they were sprinkled with water on their foreheads. This was referred to as baptism. It's never prescribed in the actual word of God, but this was the church teaching. And so with the infant mortality rate being very high, with child delivery being riskier then than it is now because of medical advancement that we have today, it influenced the church's theology. It influences the church's teaching and the church's traditions. A prostitute would conceive a child, give birth to the child, bring the child to the footsteps of the church. Then the priests within would find word of the baby on the doorstep and come bring the child in, sprinkle water on the baby's forehead and say, this child is saved. But meanwhile, in an outlying village near the cathedral, a godly woman who had followed Jesus her entire life, who's nine months pregnant, would go into labor and then something would go wrong as often was the case. The baby would pass away before they could rush him to the nearby church for the priest to sprinkle water on the baby's head. And it was thought, okay, I'm sorry, your child's in hell forever. And, uh, and Calvin could not abide this. Luther could not abide this. Why is it that godly women would bear children who would not be baptized and therefore go to hell? And why is it that the, the children of prostitutes would be in heaven forevermore because they just got to the church ahead of time? Again, there's nothing about baptism that is salvific. We are baptized because we are saved. We've taught this, look back on our series, The Sacred Acts, in the very beginning of the Redemption Church. But at the time, this was heavily divisive, and so Calvin drew upon the one he knew, Augustine. Augustine, in trying to answer this question, how is it possible that the babies of Christians would not get to heaven, whereas the babies of sinners would. Moreover, why is it that some of the babies who have water sprinkled on their foreheads will grow up to lead holy, immoral lives as far away from the gospel as they possibly can? What's the deal? I thought that they were saved because we did the sprinkling or we used the super soaker. We did the magic trick. We said the right magic words that some dude made up. We cast the spell. And now they're not saved. 
What's the deal? We had to change our understanding of theology. And as a result, Augustine drew upon his past as a Manichaean, Gnostic, Neoplatonic monk saying, look, every single movement of every single atom, every place where every leaf that has ever fallen lands was predetermined by God. This is unconditional. The work of Christ upon the cross is limited in its efficacious work only to those who were pre-known before the foundations of the earth to be saved. And this includes the children of the elect under covenant marriage. When the moment of salvation comes, it is irresistible. Some may, however, not be given a further gift. This was just made up. Not be given the further grace of perseverance of the saints. That is Augustine. Does it remind you of Calvin? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. This is why I don't wave the Calvinist flag. For one thing, because Calvin's a dude who's dead. Jesus is alive. Moreover, much of the five points of Calvinism were derived from a straight-up Gnostic pagan attempt to explain why babies with water sprinkled on their heads went to heaven and those who didn't get it all died and went to hell forever. This is literally part of where Reformed theology comes from today. This is an ancient question. What happens to babies when they die? Do they go to heaven or do they go to hell? And in order to answer the question about infant baptism, Luther and Calvin straight up borrowed from Augustine, who borrowed from his own pagan past to the neglect of what scripture says. So Jesus articulates his heart for children right here. It's not God's will that any little one ever be lost. It's not God's will that any little one ever be lost. He's going to say that in today's text, Matthew chapter 19. He has a heart for children that is severe in his wrath against those who would lead little ones astray. Verse six, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That's Jesus. That's the Prince of Peace talking. That's how God feels about those who would lead little ones astray who believe in him. There is no clear teaching then about the, what's called the age of accountability doctrine. We know we're born with a proclivity unto sin. David himself would even say in Psalm 51, surely I was sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. Like you've known since before birth that I was born with this sinful nature, this proclivity unto sin, and this predisposition towards sin. So we're born with this sin nature, but does that mean that we are born damned? Does that mean that we are born and by default we go to hell? If a baby is miscarried, for example, if a baby is aborted, I do not believe so because of Jesus' heart toward children. In its initial context, in a direct application of the text, Jesus is articulating his heart toward children and the child is clearly representative of the church and Israel, his heart toward his people. 
Yet it also is not an object lesson, not a parable, not a building upon the actions of another. It's clear that this child is standing there, and if someone were to misconstrue what he is saying, the result would be to say absolutely universal salvation for all children. And that would presuppose then in verse six, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it will be better for him, such and so on. This is where the concept of accountability comes from. That you as a child, if you believe in Jesus and someone leads you astray, God has fierce words for that person. Romans chapter one gives us an incredible teaching to this end. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, Redemption Church, do you see that? That's important to understand. What is it that we do when, we, when it comes to the truth of God? Say that with me. Suppress the truth. If an infant lacks the capacity to suppress the truth of God, they have not yet suppressed the truth of God. If someone born with profound mental challenges, someone born with special needs, who has never suppressed the truth of God for unrighteousness, this is where the concept of the age of accountability comes from biblically. Since what can be made known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. Do you see this from the view of the infant? For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse for although they knew God, infants lack the capacity to do this. They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, infants don't claim to be wise. Do you see why Jesus says you must become like one of these? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So this is partly why I believe that my son, Aiden Isaiah Campbell, named for the prophet who saw God, sees God now. There was never a point at which Aiden was presented with the truth of the gospel and then he suppressed it to get away with wickedness. There was never a point at which Aiden claimed to be wise but actually became a fool. Rather, I see Jesus' heart toward children here. Again, there is not an explicit statement whereby Jesus says all infants go to heaven when they die, but he does say Clearly, clearly, absolutely. Look, truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is it to be childlike? And what, in what ways do you need to be like a child again? Do you miss childhood, especially at Christmas time? Isn't that a beautiful objective for joy to be as happy as we were when we were little kids, but functional as adults, professionally and financially healthy? Isn't that kind of the goal? Would you become like a child again? Like you've never been hurt before. Long before you claimed to be wise at all, but you were actually a fool. Raise your hand if you can think back to times when you were pretty sure you were wise, but looking back, you're like, that was foolishness. Raise your hand if you remember those times in your life. We've all kind of fit that description at some point. Remember your heart before that? Before the betrayal, before the slander, before the big, colossal, boneheaded mistakes in your life, long before all of that, do you remember that? Would you come before Jesus like that? In fact, you must. You must. If you're lost, you must. Otherwise, you will not be saved. 
as the Holy Spirit of God draws upon your heart, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. This is the day that you're drawn before him. It's not gonna be because you solved the Rubik's Cube of salvation. It's gonna be because you're drawn by the Father. Does that make sense? The Father making you his, what is it? Child, do you get it? You must be like a child to come to God. Would you return to a childlike state in your heart? Would you confess your sin? Stop pretending to be wise. Stop pretending like you have it all together. You can't come to God until you surrender. Would you confess today Jesus is Lord? Like the child that he took into his lap in the gospel of Mark, would you be taken into the arms of God today? So Matthew 18 leads into a series of other teachings that are all relevant, all on the heels of the same concept. Okay, we've seen this text before in verse nine. If your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. Okay, that's a popular teaching. We know exactly what it means. Some of you need to throw your phones in the trash can on your way out the door if God's calling you to do that. You need to take a bat to your laptop if that's what God says you need to do. Okay, am I talking to you? All right, do you understand what I'm saying? I know how prevalent pornography is. If it causes you to stumble, get rid of it. Get rid of it. It's better for you to go through the year 2023 with no smartphone. You understand what I'm saying? If it causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. There are accountability measures that you can take. Ask me for more details on that but it may not even be technology. It may not be your phone or your smartphone or something else. It may be a relationship, whatever the thing may be that causes you to stumble, get rid of it, throw it away. Then look at this. He goes immediately into verse 10, back to the subject of children. Did you know that this teaching about gouging out your eye and throwing it away if it causes you to stumble is in the middle of a teaching about God's heart toward children? Look at the very next verse. See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones. Because I tell you that in heaven, their angels continually view the face of my father in heaven. Now, some manuscripts include verse 11, for the son of man has come to save the lost. But even this right here is exquisite. It's exquisite. See that you, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. Would you pray for the city of Seattle and the state of Washington as we continually politically posture ourselves like a state and a city and a people and a culture that hates unborn babies? See to it that you don't despise one of these little ones because I tell you that in heaven, their angels continually view the face of my father in heaven. This is one of those scriptural bases from which, from which we get the notion of guardian angels. The whole, the whole idea of guardian angels is not biblically found per se. This is the one teaching, this idea that little ones have angels continually viewing the face of the father in heaven. When a child dies, they don't become an angel, okay? Okay. I'm not going to be theologically nitpicky the next time somebody on Facebook tells one of my friends who's lost a lost loved one, heaven gained an angel today. Like, that's not the time for like, um, actually, like way to be a jerk, pastor. Like open up a systematic theology book and give like a lecture at the funeral. No. What this text actually says is that the angels looking over the little ones always have their eyes on the father in heaven. And then what do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it truly, I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. 
This is a popular teaching too. We've seen that the eye gouging teaching is in the context immediately preceded and immediately followed by, about, by a teaching about God's heart toward children. How many of you guys recognize this teaching, leaving behind the 99 to go after the one? Does this sound familiar? Did you know that it is also immediately preceded and immediately followed by a teaching from Jesus about God's heart toward children? Look at the very next verse. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. That's verse 11. We use verses 12 and 13 all the time. In fact, I've seen it misused by Christians. I once had a woman leave the church for months and then she said, you didn't come after me. It says you're supposed to leave the 99 and come after the one. All right, and I was like, you never fill out a connect card. First of all, what's your name? <laughs> Let's start with that. Sometimes the one doesn't want, like wants to trap the shepherd and say, gotcha. <laughs> all right, but this is an accurate application of the text. It is true. We should go after the one who has gone astray. We do most often apply this in the context of somebody who's been out of church and we need to bring them back into the fold. But did you know that the verses before and the verses after the verses around are about God's heart toward children? So you can see that this child in Jesus's arms, standing right there among them, or in the Mark's gospel account, sitting in his lap, he's, uh, he's, he's emblematic of us. He's emblematic of Israel. He's emblematic of God's people. And God is also clearly teaching what he feels about children in this text. In the same way, it is not the will of your father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. This is why in a secondary application of the text, I believe babies go to heaven when they die because it's not God's will for little ones to perish. Do you see this word perish? Does this sound familiar? Right? Does that sound like John 3:16 to you? <laughs> This is partly why. Now look, we go into another teaching and this is the most forgotten teaching in the church today, it seems. This is the subject of a book that I desperately want to write that I think that churches need in general. This is the foolproof formula for how to deal with conflict within the church. So follow the contiguous train of thought. The disciples ask the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus takes the child right there and says, you've got to become like one of these to be saved. Don't lead one of these little ones astray. Offenses will come, but woe to the one who, who offends. Woe to the one who leads a child astray. If, if you are led into temptation by something like your eye, then gouge it out of your life. That causes you to offend God, to sin against your brother, to lead a little one astray. When one of these little ones goes astray, God seeks after him, leaving the 99 to go after the one. And now the contiguous train of thought, the full arc has led us to verse 15, if your brother sins against you. Do you see how this child has been present the entire time? He's even present in chapter 19. The whole time, this kid is right here. This boy, Greek, Pideon, could be an infant even, is right there. If your brother sins against you, go rebuke him in, oh man, this word is so incredibly important. Can you shout this word, Redemption Church? Private. Say it again. Private. That's step one. No, you do not take to Facebook. That's not step one. 
Let me check my notes. Raise your hand if you see Facebook anywhere. Let's see. Private listens to you. You've won over your brother. If you won't listen, take it to Instagram. Is that right there? Do you see that? Okay, uh, so the uh, testimony of two, three witnesses, every fact may be established, yada, yada, establishing facts, whatever. Where's Twitter? No, 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 here, it should go right here. This one's missing from my translation. That's, that's where you tweet about it. My bad, okay. Do you see this? This is the clearest, most foolproof, perfect, literally spoken by Jesus process whereby we resolve conflict, and it has never in millennia failed, okay? If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won, you have won your brother. Therefore, it's resolved, okay? So if someone sins, and particularly, by the way, not even all translations include these words against you. Not even all the ancient manuscripts include those, include those words. So if someone has sinned in a way that directly affects you, okay, are you ready for this? Go to him. There it is. It's so simple, right? But man, is this thing forgotten. We totally botch this. We have a whole for-profit Christian slander industry, a for-profit Christian libel industry that utterly foregoes this basic, clear process. If he won't listen, Okay, that's, that's crucial. If you won't listen, then you take one or two others with you so that the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you, which means we're starting over, we're starting over again. If this guy won't listen to one-on-one -on -one confrontation and he won't listen to like four-on-one, we love you, please repent, repent confrontation, and he won't listen to like the whole small group of the church, then this guy is seriously dedicated to his sin more than he is dedicated to the idea of the lordship of Christ. This is probably not a saved person. When you get to that final step, that third step, it sounds, it sounds scary, right? But I've been here. I've seen it, and it's beautiful. It's actually, it's actually more familiar to you if you've seen the reality show Intervention. That's kind of what this is, only this is inspired by God. It's in the context of the church, and there's this there's the Holy Spirit present. So if someone has been confronted once and they're like, no, I'm not gonna repent. And then the two or three witnesses are gathered and they're like, no, I'm not gonna repent. And then the whole church body is like, listen, we love you, please repent. And they're like, no, I'm not gonna repent from sin. I'm gonna keep on doing this, I like it. In that case, in that case, then fellowship is broken and I believe we start all over again. The times that I've seen it reach step three, which by the way, in a, how many years have I been in? ministry? How long is it, Mark? 16 years, 17 years, something like that. Like the years I've been in ministry, I've seen it reach this point twice. And in both scenarios, it was actually a beautiful outpouring of repentance and grace. It works. The secularists have picked up on this. Therapists have borrowed from this. The idea of an intervention, they're like, oh, that's pretty good. I think I might use that in my practice. In fact, I'm going to start a reality show on it. It's great. It works. It works. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. There's an eternal consequence for what happens here in this moment. Again, truly, I tell you, if one 
if, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. How many of you have heard that verse before? Raise your hand. Okay, keep it up if you heard it applied in the context of a small group that had only two people show up. And they're like, well, two or three are gathered, so that means God's here. Guess what? We love you, Mrs. Peggy Sue, Sunday school teacher. Thank you for your heart towards God. However, Mrs. Peggy Sue, Matthew 18, 20 is about a confrontation moment over sin. <laughs> it's about going to one individually. They still don't repent. Bringing two or three with you. Do you see what I mean? In that moment, listen, this is, a, this is like an early stage intervention. We're here to confront you about the sin in your life. Please repent today. Guess what? When you have that awkward confrontational moment, church discipline is scary, but you know that Jesus is there with you. That's what this text actually says. That's what this is actually about. And all of it is in the overall arc of Matthew chapter 18 about God's heart toward his children. Verse 21, then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Sounds good right? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that happened. So you guys follow this? One man owes another man money. He cannot pay it back. It's almost thrown into prison, almost loses his family over it, but he's shown mercy. That man immediately sees another guy who owes him money, but instead of showing him grace, he has him thrown into debtor's prison. You forgive absolutely because you've been absolutely forgiven. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured and he could pay everything until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. Do you see how important this process is? If there's no forgiveness when someone in the church has messed up and repented, you will not be forgiven. It is elemental that you show grace to someone because you've been shown grace. It is absolutely essential that we abide by the clear teaching of scripture to lead to the restoration of a believer who's stuck in sin. 
It's absolutely imperative that we show grace, that we show mercy, that we show love. We absolutely must forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ from our hearts. That's the only way the church functions. Although there is actually one other way the church functions. Would you like to know that way? It's church. It's, it's sort of like another model for the church. Are you ready for this? Be sinless forever. How's that sound? Right? That's another church model. So write that down. <laughs> Alternatively, be perfect. So there's that. Just make note of it. It's not going to work. <laughs> what, do you, what do you say we go with Jesus' model? Raise your hand if you're in favor of Jesus' model for the church. And now, Yeah, me too. Me too. If I sin against you, come to me. Okay? Come to me. Don't dig up dirt and email it to everybody that I know. Okay? Come to me. Actually, talk to me. My ears work. Despite all the years of drumming, they still work. You may have to yell a little, but I'll hear you. No one has ever gotten past step one with me. If I've sinned against someone and they told me about it, I immediately apologize. I repent and do what I can to make it right. It's never gotten to step two with me. All right, be open to this too. If you sin against someone, you want them to come to you. And if you're being stubborn about it, you're not ready to let go, you're still struggling with it, and then the, you want them to come to you, not blasting everything about you in public, trying to humiliate you as much as they can. No, they want to go to you privately. And then they're going to bring two or three other people just to establish the, 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 the sincerity of the whole process, that you would repent. That's the, that's the goal, is your restoration. Your restoration, your repentance. That's the hope here. And all of it too, we've been shown forgiveness. We're fellow sinners for crying out loud. We're not coming at you with, a, with an air of superiority. We're coming at you pleadingly that you would repent, that you'd be restored because that sin that's in your life is gonna destroy it. It's gonna ruin your life. And we don't want that to happen to you. We want you to repent. That's why then when it comes to the whole small group at the Redemption Church, we've all gathered, all right? Nobody's touched the charcuterie just yet. It's because there's, a, there, there's something to be addressed here. Listen, we want you to repent from this. And then in tears, you confess, you pray, and then the, the matter is dropped forevermore. And then it's time for some charcuterie. Amen? That's how this works. That's how this works. Jesus gave this biblical model for how to settle conflict in the context of a teaching about his heart toward children. When we arrive at the next chapter, Matthew chapter 19, we're going to see verses 1 through 12 in our curriculum. Look at this. The child, look, the, 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 children, the children motif continues, all right? In the opening of Matthew chapter 19, he actually relocates. I'm sorry, I misspoke earlier. It's not the same child, but child, more children are brought to him in Matthew chapter 19. So the motif continues. Look at chapter 19, verse 13. Then children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Do you see again why there's hope for children who pass away? All right, it's not a direct application of the text, but I do see hope. After placing his hands on them, he went on from there. This is Jesus's heart toward children. This is why I believe the children who pass away, 
the babies who are miscarried, babies who are aborted, I believe that when they pass away, they're instantly, as Dr. John MacArthur puts it, safe in the arms of God. It's the title of a book on this subject. I believe it. I believe it sincerely. Jesse, does that mean that the whole city of heaven's population is comprised of the souls of people who never were even born? Yeah, that sounds beautiful to me. That sounds beautiful to me. That sounds exquisite. That sounds like my God. That sounds like Jesus' heart toward the children who were all around him. None of whom had yet suppressed the truth. They were born with a proclivity unto sin. Surely from the moment of conception, as a father myself, I can attest that you don't ever have to teach kids. Listen, kids, here's how you sin. But this is a secondary application of this text, God describing his heart toward children, and I see hope in it. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't want to misrepresent what the text says. This is not a passage about Jesus saying the babies go to heaven when they die. It's Jesus giving a teaching about his heart toward children, representing the church and Israel and how we're to function among one another, how we're to reconcile with one another, and what happens if you lead one of these little ones astray. But I see, secondarily, hope for the bereaved parent. And that hope is not insignificant. I see hope in this text. Raise your hand if you see the hope that I'm talking about in this passage. There's a glimmer of hope in this. I want you to understand that's not the direct application of the text, but it is a significant one. And it means a lot to a lot of people. Speaking of losing children, this is what the gospel cost God. This is, the, this is nothing short of the very price of atonement itself. This is something that will bring you close to the father, the very fact that you share this in common with him if you've lost a child. Watch your heart and guard your emotions in this. If you've lost a loved one, if you've lost a child, if you suffer from miscarriages, and my doctoral research told me that the, there's far more than merely 25% of women of childbearing age who have had a miscarriage. If that's you, I want you to come to the Redemption Church on Mother's Day. If that's you, I want you to tell your group. If you're, if you're pregnant, please don't wait until the 12-week mark to tell your small group. Tell everybody right away so that if the worst scenario should happen, you are surrounded by a community of people who love you and who can prayerfully support you. I want it to be a normal thing within the culture of the Redemption Church that when women are pregnant, they tell their small groups right away. I want you to know that you are surrounded by love. I want you to know that now because of your loss, you actually may glimpse more closely the atonement itself. This word, Psalm 34, 18 through 20, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. The one who is righteous has many adversaries. Does this sound like anybody to you? Who is righteous? There's only one who's righteous. And who is that, Redemption Church? It's Jesus only Jesus is the righteous one. He has many adversaries, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. This is John chapter 19, verse 32 at the foot of the cross. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw 
saw this has testified so that you may also believe his testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth. John is saying, I was there. I saw it. I'm writing it to you for this. These things happen so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's Psalm 34. And also another scripture says, they will look at the one they have pierced, quoting the prophet Zechariah. You want to talk about the loss of a child? Ask God the Father. This is Jesus on the cross, the moment that his physical life is extinguished and the atonement is bought. And thereafter, three days later, upon his resurrection, the victory is secured forevermore. This is what the gospel cost God, the death of his one and only son. This is the significance of the atonement, victory over evil forevermore, paid in full. And if you've lost a child, you understand that better now than you did before. I do believe that babies go to heaven when they die. I do not have an explicit biblical basis for it. But when I see Jesus' heart toward children, I see hope. And in the meantime, in the immediate response, I don't want you to feel like if I miss my child enough and if I want to go to heaven when I die to see my child, that's reason enough. Listen, your grief for your child is not salvific. You can grieve your child's death and still not be reconciled with your child. Rather, you, by the drawing of the Holy Spirit of a sovereign father who calls upon you, confess that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Then you will be saved. You must love God more than your child. You must be drawn upon by the Holy Spirit, confess that he's Lord, repent from sin. And then secondarily to that, you bring into your life, you see in your life now the beautiful hope that you can be reconciled with your child again. Do you hear what I'm saying, Redemption Church? It's not enough just to miss your kid. Say, okay, yeah, I'll say whatever magic words I have to to see my child again. I want you to know it's not about your desire to be with your child. It's not about your desire to be reconciled with your son. It's about God's work through his son that you have hope that you might see your child again. So I don't want you to do this for the wrong reasons. I want you to know that this moment, this drawing upon your heart, it's more than your grief. It's eternity. It's the Holy Spirit of God who has existed from of ancient, hovering over the waters of the deep. That same Holy Spirit who brought Jesus back from the dead, that same Holy Spirit, that's the one calling upon your heart right now. May you be like the child whom Jesus brought to himself and said, you've got to be like one of these, humbly, no longer suppressing the truth, no longer proclaiming yourself wise, confessing the truth. Jesus is Lord. If this is the day that you give your life to Christ, I want you to let us know in the connect card. I want you to tell us on redemptionwashington.com. I want you to let one of our ushers know. Come tell me at the end of the service. Tell us on the website because we need to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we love baptizing people at the Redemption Church. So would you stand with us as we close? I want you to pray with me. If this is the day that you've given your life to Christ, God, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. I believe, God, 
that you gave your one and only son on the cross as a fulfillment of Psalm 34, as a fulfillment of Zechariah, that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, God, I have sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess, O oh God, that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I confess, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way I can come to God the Father except through you, Jesus. So like that child whom you brought to yourself, I humbly come before the King. I confess my sin. I am not claiming to be wise. I just see I have no excuse. Jesus, you are Lord. And so by the Holy Spirit of God, I confess it with my mouth. Redemption Church, would you confess the truth like a child? Would you just say honestly what has always been real, that Jesus is Lord? Say it, Redemption Church. Jesus is Lord. Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. I'm coming to the Father. Lord, like a child, humble, aware of my sin, my need for you. God, save me, forgive me, redeem me. Take me to be with you when I die. I live for you, repentant from my sin. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. God, let me be saved, saved, saved in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship together. You come down to the front if you need prayer for absolutely anything. I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. I see you now. I'm laying it down, and I know that.
I love you, Redemption Church. I love you forever. I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us online today at Redemption Church. My name is Mike Smith, and I'm the associate pastor here at Redemption Church. Now, the next best step you could take would be to get involved with an online or in-person small group here at Redemption Church. Through a small group, you will be able to have the opportunity to ask questions and to share your burdens with others who care about what's going on in your life and the lives of others in our community. Now remember, when you go online to sign up for a small group, there's many options that you can give to this ministry. From all of us at Redemption Church, we wish you a great day.